This message by Brian Davis, entitled, Holy Men, is made available to you by Covenant Fellowship Church. It was recorded during the second session at our 2022 Regional Men's Conference, Rise Up. Good morning. All righty. First Timothy. Please open your Bible to First Timothy. It has been a joy to be with you all so far, and yeah, I've been refreshed by our times of reflection and singing and the encouragements that have come forward. Uh, yeah, it's been ministering to me, so thank you for letting me come and play a role in it. Go and say amen when you get there, First Timothy chapter 2. Okay, I'll wait for the rest of you. All right, two more. Um, amen. <laughs> They're still trickling in. <laughs> I mean, Ray Orland's table of contents, you could preach that thing. That was excellent. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I am royalty. <laughs> that was encouraging. Let me pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Holy is your name, and may it be hallowed in our midst. We desire to give you glory, to ascribe to you the glory that's due. And so we ask for your help. We need help. We need help in every part to work right. Lord, I know and I know that you know I ain't got no business being no minister of the gospel. Aside from your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a, a vision of Christ that is compelling and convicting, that he would be high and lifted up. That his holiness would be so brilliant to us that we would see how sinful and undone we are in ourselves. Oh Lord, I know I am an unclean man of unclean lips. And I know that this is a room of unclean men, of unclean lips who have been touched by the cleansing hand of Christ. And we, we have need to be touched again. Oh, Lord, wash us with your word. Renew us with your word. Soften us with your gospel. We ask that you would sanctify us in the truth, oh, Lord. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen? Amen. Okay. What does God will for us as men? What does God will for us as men? Well, we don't have time to answer that today. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of places in Scripture you could go to fill out your job description as a man of God. Uh, we're called to be followers of Christ. We're called to be lovers of God. We're called to be servants of all. We're called to be witnesses of the risen Lord. Uh, should the Lord give you a wife and children, we're called to love them and serve them in a God-honoring way. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to be good stewards of our resources. We're called to be hardworking men, encouragers of the saints, to be rejoicing men, gentle men. 
weeping men, to be just and merciful men, to be singing men, uh, men who delight in the works of God and study them. We're called to be humble men, zealous for all kinds of good works. We're called to be men who are marked by repenting of sin and continuing stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And there's a lot there. Right, We could double-click on each one of those for the rest of the weekend and never fully exhaust any particular aspect. Right, Too much for us to faithfully expound on in one day in any kind of depth or totality. What does God will for us as men? It takes a lifetime to research, to seek to live out, and even at the end of that lifetime, you'd need many more. It's such a big and essential question for us, though, to ask as men, and any serious consideration of the question just realizes the vast complexity of an answer. What does God will for us as men? In one sense, the answer is the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. While in another sense, we're talking about growing up into full manhood, right? Into the full stature of manhood, which is nothing less than complete conformity to the image of Christ, right? The goal is being fully conformed to him who is the perfect man, and that will, in fact, be done only when we are perfected by the sight of him. I say that on the outset just to reduce all of your expectations for this message. I just want to clearly communicate that while I hope to be helpful to us in thinking about that question of what does God will for us as men, I obviously cannot communicate on all that interacts with that question. It's a wonderful question. Keep asking that question with your Bible open day in and day out. But I do want to lean into the question a little. Little. L-I-L. Apostrophe. And hopefully, I hope in doing that, you know, I do hope to have some meaningful encouragement to us as men as we consider one of the men-specific appeals in Scripture. So if we want to know God's heart for men in the church so that we can be increasingly transformed to that aim and that goal by the renewal of our minds, I think one good place for us to look is 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. In it, we get Paul expressing a brief but weighty appeal. And we see Paul interacting with that question, what does God will for us as men? So let's look at that verse and let's consider that answer. So under the category of what does God will for us as men, this is one solution, this is one answer, this is one aspect that we see from the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, I will read it. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And saints, this is God's word, and may the Lord bless the hearing of his word and cause us to bear fruit as doers of it. Amen. Now, in terms of our context for our passage, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is his understudy in the ministry who was to remain in Ephesus and help give shape to the covenant community. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, we get a brief little mission statement for why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. He wrote this letter saying, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So one thing he is expressly trying to help answer is what men ought to be doing in the church. In the immediate context of 1 Timothy 2, right, Paul has been reflecting on what God's goal is in the world. 1 Timothy chapter 2 lets us know that all the saints should be praying, and it's one of the first things the saints should be thinking to do, to to pray. And the, the reason he at least gives is God has a desire for the salvation of everyone, 
right? You see that in chapter 2, verse 3. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So in order for that to occur, God intends for his people to pray for that end. Well, where we get in chapter 2, verse 8 and on, Paul is talking about how the church as a community is to be led, how they're to be led in carrying God's burden. Specifically, in verse 8 through 15, Paul is helping Timothy understand the appropriate ways for men to lead in the church, as well as the inappropriate ways for women to lead. Now, this is rooted in God's created differences between men and women and seeking to give clarity to some of how those gender dynamics should play out beautifully, gloriously, encouragingly in the body of Christ as they worship. And what leaps off the pages of Scripture, if you're familiar with the general storyline, is that God has designed men to lead. We see that specifically here. They're called to help lead the church. All men are called to help lead the church. And this is something all men should own. Men are designed by God to be leaders in cultivating a God-glorifying community. But let's be clear by what we mean by lead. What this call to leadership does not mean is that all men are called to lead in the same ways as pastors. Now, all pastors in the church are to be men, but not all men in the church are the pastors of the church. Uh, Paul goes on to tease this out explicitly in just a few verses, beginning in chapter 3. Being a man does not grant anyone any unique authority over women generally, nor is it envisioned that being a man requires each of us to lead the church in preaching and teaching. No, that role of leadership is a good role of leadership, but it's reserved for the pastoral officers that God appoints to any particular congregation, and they are tasked by God with that duty and with recognizing godly men who can help lead the church in preaching and teaching. So what is not envisioned is that everywhere the saints gather, just any old dude is to be recognized as a teacher and preacher just by virtue of being a man. That is an incorrect understanding of leadership. That is not what we're saying. That is not what Paul is saying. But even though that way is not the way that all men are called to lead, Well, that doesn't mean that there's not any way that all men are called to lead, right? So though men are not all called to be elders slash pastors slash overseers slash shepherds, though not all men are called to lead in that way, all men are called to lead in exemplary humility, to lead in being dependent, devoted, disciples. By and large, brothers, how the men go, the church goes. And Paul starts by telling the men where to go and how to go, that the church might go the right way. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Uh, Generally, I think that when men think about leading, they don't tend to think about this aspect of it. But it's interesting that this is like one of the first things that popped into Paul's mind when he's writing how people should behave in the church. For this to be a chief aim for Paul, I think it's intended to be a chief aim for us, and especially us as men of the church. And so from this text, I want to consider three biblical aims for men of God in the church of God. Three biblical aims for men of God in the church of God, and we'll take them one at a time. The first biblical aim is that we be prayerful men. Prayerful men. I desire then that in every place the men should pray. 
What a fascinating way to speak. And what an interesting aim to have that I desire that everywhere the men should pray. I wonder if you've ever even connected that with men as you think through what men should do in the church and as you encourage men with what they should be thinking about their contributions. I just wonder where prayer is on that list. I just find it interesting in the letter Paul is giving to Timothy, which we use to give shape to congregations, like the first job description he explicitly gives to men is that of prayer. He says, I desire then. And it's given to help shape Timothy's desire then, which should help shape our desire then. And one question we should have here is, well, why does Paul's desires mean more than our desires? Isn't this just like an Ephesus thing? Well, one thing I think Paul seems to be suggesting is that his desires should have a unique way in the church. This is not just how one ought to behave in this church, he says. He said, this is one how one must behave in the church. And this is not because Paul thought of himself as some special guy, right? We know from chapter 1, he thought the opposite of that. In chapter 1, he, he previously called himself the chief of sinners. So it's not because he thought he was a special person, but rather Paul did recognize God appointed him to a special office. He had just said previously in verse 7, if you look right before that verse, that God appointed Paul to be an apostle. One who is tasked with being an authoritative representative of Christ on earth. One who is tasked with teaching foundationally what the church is and ought to be. One who is tasked with giving oversight and insight into the formation to the institutional church. Right? That is the authority through which Paul wrote and spoke. Remember, that's how he starts his letters often. That's how he started this letter. If you open to the beginning, he says, this is coming from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So it's from that apostolic office that Paul wants to communicate his apostolic desire, something he wants to bequeath to each body to give and leave to them. He wants them to know from God, their Savior, from Jesus, their hope, the call and the desire, and it's this, that men should pray. Everywhere. It's interesting. I wonder if you've noticed anything similar to what I have seen in my limited time walking with Jesus. And that is that oftentimes brothers are far more eager to lead in preaching than to lead in praying. I find many men eager to speak for the Lord and far less eager to seek the Lord himself. This is a temptation I am ashamedly too familiar with in my own self. It's a pride I too often surrender to in my own sin. This desire to practice our righteousness to be seen by others rather than seeking the Lord in private who rewards those who diligently seek him. But dear brothers, the Lord is clear, we should pray. The gospel bids us to pray. Chapter 2 starts with the priority of that very call, right? First of all, I urge y'all to pray. This is Paul speaking. He says, it's good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's almost as if Paul is saying, listen, we're dealing with divine things up in here. Though we dwell on earth, the whole of our true business is in heaven where our Christ is. 
We walk around tempted with sin. We walk around among a perverse and crooked generation. We are subject to fallen rulers and called to obey faulty authorities. And we are to experience the peace of God if we are to live godly lives, if we are to be granted opportunities to testify about the resurrection, if we're to see people get saved, if we're to witness the miracle of folks being reconciled to God who once were far from God, if we are going to be able to be brought to see the emptiness of our sin and others to be brought to see the emptiness of their sin and yet come to hope in the one mediator that's between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, if those are the things you're living for and desirous of, then you must realize that none of those things come from us. All of those things come from the Lord, and we only get to participate participate through prayer. If all that stuff is the stuff you want, that means we got a lot to pray about. You can't do any of that without him. The church is where God moves. He's, they're the people God is among where the works of God are being displayed through the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus, and we connect to him for productivity through prayer. Is there anybody who's feeling dry in their soul? who feels distant from the Lord. Do you pray? Do you pray? Do you keep praying? Do you keep seeking? Do you keep knocking? Do you keep asking? There are no humble and happy souls that do not pray. You may have grand ideas for your life. You may have great ideas for the church. You may have burdens and critiques. You may have strategies and ideas. But the question on the floor is, do you pray? I know one man who, not only would they have a church service in the morning, but they had that old Baptist tradition of having an evening service, often a prayer meeting, and you could not become an elder unless you were regularly at the, the prayer meeting. That was an office that was just off limits to you. If you would not join the saints in prayer, what makes you think you can join in leading the saints well? The only reason we don't pray is pride. We'll think about this in the next message a little bit more in depth. But it's important we understand a lack of prayer is simply a lack of affection for the Lord, something to be grieved over, something to repent of, something to turn from, seek the Lord in. That's the real test of our dependence. That's the real proof of Someone's humility. How, how do they pray? We take for granted that we can pray. But we don't deserve to pray. Now, you remember the man that Jesus healed of blindness and the religious leaders were trying to understand how he got healed and he's like, well, this is telling. Uh, but one of the things he says, he says, y'all know God's with this guy? This is the blind guy speaking. He says, because we know God doesn't listen to sinners. God listens to him. Therefore, he can't be a sinner because God doesn't listen to sinners. Our evangelical foundation, I think, has kind of jacked up our ability to kind of feel that it is a privilege to pray. You're not entitled to pray. 
You don't deserve to pray. You get to pray. Oh, brothers, we do not deserve for God to listen to us ever. You know what happened with Adam and Eve when they sinned against God? The fellowship got shut down. That's the byproduct of sin. You don't get to walk with him and fellowship with him and speak to him as we were intended to. Because of our sin, we deserve to never be heard by God. Perfect beings, at least morally, who sin, that is angels, do not get to come back ever. Hebrew says it is not angels that he helps. But God has taken a profound interest in us in his mercy to close the gap. There was a problem and we needed someone to mediate that problem and there was a mediator. There's one mediator, the man Christ Jesus and he reconciles us to God. He makes it so that we get to have a life-giving relationship with God. He does this by paying for our sin that would prevent God from hearing us. He does this by closing the gap, by uniting us to himself in faith, and by, in his resurrection, bringing us to where he is. We're hidden with Christ, hidden in Christ with God, Colossians says. We've been, we're seated where he is. And now we get to, we get to say stuff and God hear us Every time. Not only we get to pray, it's, it's not based on how that week happened. It's not based on how that day happened. It's based on how Christ happened. And his life was so perfect. His death was so complete. His resurrection was so powerful that we get to come to glory never nervous but bold. No, no. He's that good. His righteousness that strong. I shall be heard because of him. I love the story of Spurgeon showing visitors around the church who didn't know it was him. And uh, he said, you want to know where the heating room is? And I said, sure. Sure call it the furnace, and he takes them down to a room under the church meeting space. He opens the door, and there were saints gathered to pray. Heats up the ministry. Well, brothers, we're called to whatever church you're a part of, you are an ember that is to keep your church hot. Heat that baby up. No, in our culture, again, there's all kinds of things associated with manhood, but in the church, there is a chief thing that is supposed to be associated with us as men, and that is prayer. I desire that in every place the men should pray. This is to mark Christian men in every church, in every place. God has determined that leading forth from among the assembly ought to be the sound of manly dependence on God. Oh, Lord, we need you, should have some bass in it. First biblical aim is to be prayerful men. Second biblical aim from this text is that we be holy men. Holy men. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. Now, the lifting of hands was pretty common in prayer. It was the body expressing what the heart was desiring and what the mouth was praying. Seems quite understandable and normal that what was happening inwardly was being expressed outwardly. They seem to understand that the mouth was not the only way God has given us to communicate. The Lord, who knows the heart, not only hears our words or praises, but he receives worship from us in every way we authentically give it. 
In fact, he has given us a body in part to use to express his worth in our devotion to him. This is done not just in acts of obedience, but also in expressions of adoration and dependence. So it was not, and I know y'all rock with that here. And praise God. It's unfortunate that I am from a theological tradition now, that being reformed. And what I mean by that is that salvation happens of the Lord alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. It is quite unfortunate how dry that often makes a congregation. That is a malfunction of the people, not of the theology. I love being here where there's not a nervousness to shout or to raise your hands. Maybe do a little two-step and a slide all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Yay and amen and may the tribe increase. Because look, this is how the saints have always done it. It is not unusual for the saints to not just reach out to God with their spoken prayers, but even with their arms as viewed as an extension of them seeking the Lord. When they lifted up their prayers, they would often physically express that by lifting up their hands. They recognized how the posture of the body could serve the posture of the heart and the soul. And this practice is richly documented in the Old Testament scriptures. For instance, Psalm 28, verse 2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Psalm 63, verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Psalm 134, verse 2, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Psalm 141, verse 2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Lamentations 341, let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. The practice has a deep tradition in the history of the people of God, but here, In 1 Timothy 2, the emphasis is not necessarily on the lifting of the hands, but rather on the kind of hands that are being lifted. They're holy hands. So the men should be in every place praying and doing so as holy men. And I must ask you, my dear brothers, are your hands holy? Asking what kind of hands we lift in prayer is equivalent to asking what kind of life we are living as we seek to draw near to the Lord in prayer. How you live affects how you pray. It calls to mind Psalm 24, right? Psalm 24, verse 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Well, we know that the psalm's question can only be answered by Christ. When asking who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place, Christ alone stands and declares, me. He who was tempted in every way and yet remained without sin, hands always clean, heart always pure. He has come to God, and he's come to God on our behalf. But listen, 
He brings us with him. So we get to say, me, in Christ, yet not I, but Christ in me. What the gospel has come to do is let you come up the hill. Not by your own merit, not by your own hands, not by your own heart, but by his. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that we who don't deserve to be where he is get to be where he is. Never on our own merit, always on Christ, and always needing our faith to be proven genuine. He unites us to himself. He grants us his righteousness. He fills us with his spirit. He washes our sins away with his blood. He grants us to partake of his divine nature, and he calls us to his own holiness. We are contorting the gospel if in it, in any way, it reduces the charge, the weights, the feel, the teeth, the actuality. For when God says, be holy, for I am holy, for that to mean that. It means that. The psalmist says, with him is forgiveness. Why? that he may be feared. We know that without holiness, Hebrew says, no one gets to see the Lord. We know that without holiness, the apostle John says, no one has fellowship with God or with his people. If you say you do, he says, while you walk in darkness, he says, you're lying and not practicing the truth. So the question is, do we think that without holiness, we can expect to draw near to the Lord of holiness in prayer? This is what I mean. I don't mean for anyone who is repentant of their sin and coming to the Lord who's sincerely walking in the light as he is in the light, to think that in any way that will hinder their relationship with God. No, the, the confession, the repentance is fruit that there's life there. Let me tell you who I am speaking to, though. If you are walking in sin, if you're making light of your sin, if you're refusing to repent of your sin, and by repent, I mean turn. I don't mean just apologize. I don't mean just admit that it happened. I mean repent, to have a mind changed by what God says in agreement with who God is and committing by his spirit to do what he says to do. If you're refusing to repent, you should, with that, expect your prayers to be ignored. We cannot feed on sin and expect to enjoy nearness to God. Can't happen. If you are practicing immorality, if you are engaging in fornication, if you are indulging in pornography, if you are persisting in masturbation, if you are setting your mind on sinful desires, if you are embittered in your heart towards someone else, if you are being a slanderer or a liar, or if you are unrepentantly harsh with your family, or if you are not loving your wife and dwelling with her in an understanding way, or if you are in rebellion to any of God's clear calls to obedience, or if you're a lover of money or resistant to biblical correction, or if you're completely resisting your pastors in leading you, listen, you should expect silence in response to your prayers. Where there is no holiness, there is no claim for transformation. 
This is Romans 12. The mercy of God does something powerful. It makes us to be living sacrifices which are holy and acceptable to God, that is pleasing to God. It's the reasonable response to his mercy. The mercy of God causes people to to think different, to live different, to be different. This is why James, when he wrote his letter, when he was writing to a congregation who had gotten soft, not in a good way. They got soft towards sin, not soft in their hearts toward it. They, they, they'd become accustomed to it. They had given safe quarter to that enemy. They were harboring these adulterous hearts and not dealing with it. He, he writes and he says, draw near to God. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. What does that mean, James? How do we draw near to God? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The solution to Sensing our sin, seeing our sin, seeing the saints is not giving up, taking the ball and going home. It's, it's humbling ourselves. It's coming to the Lord. Honestly, authentically, it's saying, I've, I've sinned. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Cleanse me, wash me. You promised you would. I need it. Our our brother James tells us there's hope for those with defiled hands. The hope is not clean yourself up, but come to Christ for cleansing. Draw near to him, come to him, confess your sin to him. And if you repent, if you turn towards God, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. From all unrighteousness, he, he actually, he really cleanses us. In Revelation 12, we're told that there is an accuser of the brethren. And he accuses them night and day. And we know why he's able to do that, because we all sin a lot. You give him ammo to accuse you with. I give him ammo to accuse me with. And he is happy. It's the ministry of the devil to go to God and say, do you know what he just did? Night and day. 24-7, all hours, accusation, 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 and he's generally not making stuff up about us. It's the stuff we did. He has to make up stuff about God because God is actually perfect. He gets to use actual snapshots of us, the real us. But God has given us a high priest. And you know what he does all the time? The Bible says he always lives above and intercedes. What happens in that intercession? What is Jesus doing there? One of the things I think he's doing there is responding to every accusation of the devil. When the devil says, yo, but what about that? And what about that? And what about that? You know what Jared just did? You know what Tim just said? What about that? What about that? We we sing the song, arise my soul, arise, forgive him. Oh, forgive those wounds cry. 
And the Lord Jesus is able to answer. He, he is able to be the in-between. He's, he's able to give a response. No, no, I see that. I forgave that. I forgave that. I forgave that. I forgave that. Paid, 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 paid. He is the, the ministry of ever saying paid, paid, paid. Which other pastors, we can come in with all the needs because he's ever inclined to help. He gives and he gives and he gives more grace. He washes and he washes and he washes. Lord, do you, do you ever get tired of washing? No, he, he desires mercy, he says. It's his glory. He is merciful and gracious. It's what he does. It's who he is. And the only qualification for us is to actually be humble. To be grieved over our sin and to come to him for cleansing. And every time we come, he cleanses. He's too faithful not to. So what's wonderful about the Lord Jesus of the many things is where our hands are not holy, he gives holy hands to lift in prayer. We cannot be prayerful men and unholy. We cannot have it as a theological category in our mind that it doesn't matter how we live and God will just always listen to our prayers. It's just not what the Bible says. He gives grace. He gives grace to be heard and grace to obey. And the third and final aim, prayerful men, holy men, is peaceful men. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul here calls the men to be shaped by the discipline and instruction of the Lord in showing forth the peaceful fruit of righteousness that is born by those who are trained by his love. It is utterly inappropriate for us to be at peace with our head and yet be at war with his body. Prayerful men, holy men, peaceful men. Men who love peace. Men who make peace. They are the sons of God. Part of what the church is to be praying for, we're told in the beginning of chapter 2, is for the governing officials. And it's so that they can rule in such a way that there is an environment in which the saints can live peaceful lives. This obviously assumes the peace of Christ rules in their hearts and that they strive to live at peace with everyone. Here Paul calls on the men to not just be marked with, or to not be, excuse me, marked with anger and quarreling. It's inconsistent with the gospel community. They, we put anger and malice away. Jesus has not left us to the wrath of God. But God's wrath was turned from us, though we were at war with God and hostile to God and quarreling with God and disputing with God. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Christ came to forgive us in love and cover our offenses. Fewer times we get to be more like the Lord than when we cover offenses. Let Love be genuine. Love one another earnestly with a sincere brotherly love, for love covers sins, and a lot of them. And brothers, that's a prerequisite for approaching the Lord. We can only approach the Lord Jesus because terms of peace have been arranged by Jesus. As Paul previously communicated, right, that mediator we have, Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins, gave himself as a ransom for all, and brought us peace. 
We cannot approach God with hostility in our heart, quarreling in our relationships, or conflict in the body. Christ has become our peace so that we can live in that peace both with God and with each other. This is, in fact, a command. When Jesus taught them how to pray, he says, forgive us our trespasses. Yo, that's a statement. It assumes when you're coming asking for forgiveness, you are a forgiving person because of Jesus. You're going before him as proof, Lord, I've believed in you. Not in the self-righteous, I've believed in you. It's, it's Lord, I've believed in you. I'm claiming your promises for me. If someone refuses to forgive... They should know they have no expectation that they are forgiven. If someone wants to showcase their wrath, they should expect to experience God's. The saints are called to put anger and wrath away and to forgive one another in love. As God in Christ forgave you, so you also must forgive. In fact, part of what is supposed to fill our prayers, again, as we just said, is that recognition of that reality. And so here Paul is calling the men to lead in prayer, lead in holiness, and to lead in being peacemakers. The Bible tells us not to befriend a quarrelsome man. Why would you want him praying for you? This is a Christian expectation. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul wrote, if one has a complaint against another, forgive him. <laughs> I love that. We like to say if one has a complaint, hear him out. See where we're coming from. And those are all important aspects, not to diminish that. You, you do need to do that. That's a humble thing to do. But we come to it with a posture of eagerness to cover. All right, we got something to talk about, but I just want you to know on the outset, I am clipped up with forgiveness ready to shoot at you. Just know this forgiveness is on its way. Men of God are not to be marked with factions, but forgiveness. We should be eagerly leading to ensure that there are no conflicts in our lives, and that we are at peace with everyone. So men who, who aim to be prayerful and holy and peaceful, they ought to strive to have peace with everyone, to give no occasion to the devil, and not be found harboring wrath or being quarrelsome. So no unresolved conflicts with roommates or friends, or fellow members. This is one of the gifts of the Lord's Supper. It's to help the saints keep short accounts. If you're coming to the Lord's Supper and you know you're not right with a brother or sister, stop. And go be made right with them. Jesus says this, I think that's an implication of Matthew 5, 23 through 24. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. I think it applies to more than just the Lord's Supper. When you're up there singing, your blood has washed away my sins, Jesus, thank you and you don't want to forgive somebody else, stop. Take them outside. Put their hands down and say, hey, don't hit me. I'm here. Can we go talk real quick? I need to ask for your forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
This means no unresolved conflict with our wives. And again, the brother read a passage earlier, Ephesians 4. Again, again, encourage one another every day. You know the sun is a timer, a daily reminder from God for you to not be mad with anyone. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. God put a little sermon in the course of the sun. Reminds us of the faithfulness of God, the coming mercies, and at the close to make sure we've we've closed out all open accounts of anger we have. Especially in your home. No unresolved conflict with our wives. 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. How you treat your wife affects if God listens to you. Peter's like, it's a, again, the assumption is you know that prayer is like the thing we do. If you can't pray, you can't do nothing. Literally, you cannot do anything of any value, of any eternal benefit, of any lasting spiritual true fruit. Love her. She's royalty, what Ray said, right? <laughs> She's royalty, you're royalty, and he's royalty. You don't treat your wife the right way. You don't honor her. You don't dwell with her in an understanding way. If you're harsh with her, rough with her, disrespectful to her, or you have that unresolved issues with her, God will not hear you. This means no conflict with our God as well. No conflict with others, no conflict with him. Obviously, walking in unrepentant sin is conflict with him. I also mean in the realm of unbelief. You remember James? He's talking to the saints to pray. We need wisdom. We're in trial. We're suffering. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. We've kind of bought into this idea that like regardless of what we do, God is gonna do whatever we want him to. That's just not true. It's never been true. God has went through many letters. (laughs) He has communicated many truths, many precepts, so that we would not have that idea. He doesn't want us in conflict with anyone. He doesn't want us in conflict in our family. He doesn't want us not believing him. That's still a sin. And I know we want to have mercy on those who doubt, snatch them out of the fire. And if in that mind we translate to say, hey, it's okay if I just pretend like God doesn't keep his word and therefore he's still going to hear my prayer, I think you're misunderstanding what's being meant here. He's God and he's holy and he's available to all who believe in him. And he's given us no reason to never not trust him. No wrath for any, no anger towards any, nor quarreling with any. For we're ruled by the peace of Christ. I mean, I don't know if, like, you just reflect on all this mask stuff and vaccine stuff and politics stuff and race stuff, and it's just been, I mean, we have shown ourselves, haven't we? I'm just thinking, man. I think there was very little prayer answered the last couple years. 
We're not talking about peace like the world gives. We're not talking about some kumbaya stuff. We're not talking about a peace that comes through finally understanding one another's view and coming to an agreement and a consensus. We're talking about peace that's based on the cross. We're talking about a peace that surpasses understanding, a peace that is purchased by the blood of Christ, the kind of peace that depends on the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, a peace that overlooks offenses, a peace that loves earnestly, a peace that covers a multitude of sins, a peace that has been provided by the wounds of the suffering servant. Because of his chastisement, it brings peace, a peace that is staked in and shaped by the cross, that kind of peace. Because no one's ever going to do anything close to disrespecting you in a measure that is anything like what you've done to the Lord. Like we're talking about galactic differences. The Lord is not pleased with an unmerciful servant. You yoke up your friend for that little amount when I'm forgiving you that? Again, if it's true that as the men go, so goes the church. Just imagine the beauty of a church filled with men who are prayerful, holy, and peaceful. A little bit like heaven, yeah? If in all this world of conflict and people vocalizing their own opinions about stuff that they really don't understand, or using whatever airways they have to vocalize their own hurt, pain, and frustration, oh, that it was filled with appeals that says, we wanted you to come see what it looks like for peace to rule where love binds us together in perfect harmony, where we depend on a king who is to come. And God encourages us as we labor in this. We're promised fruitfulness, promised fruitfulness. For though the prayers of the wicked are useless, we know the prayers of the faithful are useful. Remember that same brother James said, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Humble yourself. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. At the end of that letter, he talked about the prayers of the righteous are powerful. And with such a high calling, dear brothers, where, where do we look? Where do we look for help? Well, I'm glad you asked. All this, like all of Scripture, it leads us to look to our Jesus This call to be peaceful, to be holy, prayerful men is simply a call to be like your Jesus. Christ was the only perfect man of prayer. Never did anyone pray like Jesus prayed. Praying at all times and everywhere praying in desolate places, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, even uttering prayers on the cross, forgive them. His prayers were so profound that those who thought they could pray heard him praying and said, yo, teach us how to pray. (laughs) Jesus was never too busy to pray. The Son of God, empowered with his spirit, who perfectly always obeyed God, prayed all the time. There's no greater apologetic for the necessity of prayer for our fruitfulness than the fact that the Lord Jesus prayed for his. Not only was he a perfect man of prayer, Jesus Christ was the only perfect man of holiness. Even the demons testified when they saw Jesus that he was the Holy One of God. 
He's the holy king who is enthroned in Isaiah's vision, we're told, that blazing vision. He's the one of whom the seraphim hide their faces and cover their feet. He's the one of whom they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This is what makes him our unique high priest. This is what proves him able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him because, as Hebrew says, he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. It is his unyielding holiness that provides hope in the midst of our lack of it. His holiness secures our standing with God forever. His holiness makes him capable to pay for all the sins of all his people precisely because it was completely unstained. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. And he it is who sanctifies his bride in his own likeness. Not only was he a man of prayer, Not only was he a man of holiness, but Christ was a perfect man of peace. He's called the prince of it. He's the very epitome and embodiment of peace. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that Christ himself is our peace. That it is by the blood of his cross that all things have been reconciled to God in peace. It's because of Christ that Paul would write to every one of the churches, regardless, or at least almost all of them, regardless of what conflict was in the church, he could start by saying grace and peace. If any man desires to be a full man, he must look to Christ and strive to follow him. And as we look to him, we will become more like him. Let me pray. Oh, dear Lord. We thank you that we can pray. We thank you that this isn't just what we do after stuff. Or when we're about to eat. But we actually get to commune. We actually get to call and be heard. We actually get to ask for help and be helped. We get to come for grace and it be given. We get to confess sin and be forgiven. Oh Lord, would you help us? Help us to know what is available to us in prayer. Help us to know what you've made possible to us in your character. We want to live as we're supposed to live. We want us to pray as we're supposed to pray. We want our churches to be what you intend for them to be. We want to be peaceful. Or would you cause the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts now? Pray for any men who have harbored bitter thoughts towards a brother, who have held a grudge for quite some time, who have silenced the voice of their conscience when they come to the table professing their one knowing that they're one with most except for them. Lord, would you melt that away? Would you convict? Would they see Christ and know that he holds no condemnation for them? Would you cause them to lay all their condemnation down at his cross? And Lord, help us to be men who seek you, who take it seriously. And would you do amazing things in response? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.